Let's turn to Mark chapter 4. I've tried to stress each week that Mark is writing about 30 years after the events he records. The author of this account was a ministry teammate of Peter uh, in Rome at the time. He had been as well in previous years a teammate of Paul. Um, A few of the pastors in the next generations, um, the one and two generations after Mark, attested to the fact that Mark was recording in writing how Peter articulated the gospel in speaking. So the gospel according to Mark is uh, basically Peter's answer to the question, who's Jesus and what difference should it make in my life? Today we're starting our study at Mark 4.35, and my plan is to go to the end of chapter 5. It's a lot of material. We're not going to study it evenly, but we will study its central theme. There are four historical accounts, and as we read in just a minute, I hope that you will look for the theme that's connecting all four of these accounts. Up to this point, in the first four chapters that we've studied so far, Jesus has, if you will, put bolts of truth into the disciples' lives and he started turning and he started torquing. And what he's going to do here in the events that Mark records is he's going to start pulling out his ratchet and tightening them down so that these lessons that they have begun to learn are just unforgettable. Jesus has already convinced the disciples in in different ways, in repeated ways, that he has the power to confront and conquer Satan. And he's going to take that bolt and ratchet it down. He has already demonstrated that he is God's chosen king and he has the power to reestablish the reign of God on earth. And he's going to ratchet it down. And he has already proven that he can rid the earth of all of its deformities. And he's going to take that truth and put a ratchet to it and tighten it down in ways that the disciples will never forget. Let's read these four accounts. Mark 4.35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. He was already in the boat. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're dying? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so scared? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, God had created humans, and God had created angels. Humans fell, the race of humans fell with Adam, and many in the angelic creation fell. This human's spirit was under the controlling influence of a fallen angelic spirit. That's what it means when it says this man had an unclean spirit. His spirit was intoxicated. It was under the controlling influence of a demonic spirit. Verse 3 says, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we're many. And Legion begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled. They told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Similar reaction, fear. But this is a shocking rejection of Jesus. It's shocking for many reasons. The main reason is because pigs were not allowed in Israel. They weren't allowed to be eaten. They were unclean animals. And the people in this region care more about their, their economy, the stability of their economy, based on pig farmers than they care about Jesus who has power over demons and a man who's just been liberated from demonic power. People are twisted in their response. Verse 18 says, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him and he did not permit him. But he said to him, go to your friends 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. The Decapolis was a group of 10 cities that were developed under the oversight of the Roman government and they were generally in the western and northern regions of Israel, which basically means this man didn't just go and tell a few people. He started going on tour, as it were. He started talking about Jesus. Talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him became a preoccupation of his life. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers, uh, came one of the rulers, Jairus by name. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He came out and seen him. He fell at his feet. In verse 23, he implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is probably a discreet way of saying her menstruation would not stop. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you knew that um, during menstruation, uh, a woman would be considered unclean. She may not have been touched by anyone for over a decade. If she was married, she probably hadn't been touched by her husband sexually for 12 years. Think of her suffering, not just the physical, but the emotional suffering. It's described in verse 26. She had suffered under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She said to herself, if I even touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She thought she'd, she'd just ruined his day. She thought, I've touched him, and now it's going to be acknowledged. I defiled him. He's now unclean. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why are you troubling the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe, trust. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, just sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And they went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl. I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that they should tell no one about this. And he told them she needs something to eat. Now, there are a couple details in this last bit. The exact Aramaic words of Jesus. The girl's precise age. And this little detail at the end, get her something to eat. Details like that present a very strong case that this account is historical. It's not legendary. C.S. Lewis uh, described it when he was an agnostic scholar, a scholar of ancient and medieval literature at Oxford. He described what it was like for him to encounter the Gospels. He knew what ancient legends, ancient fiction was like, and he became convinced that the the Gospels are ancient history. They're written as historical documents. They don't bear any marks of historical fiction. The main idea in this passage is that every human should live with the unshakable conviction that Jesus has power and authority over disaster, demons, disease, and death. Jesus has authority over disaster, demons, disease, and death. And that's what makes him worthy of supreme respect, fear. The first account, the stilling of the storm, ends with the question, who is this man? I love the elegant wording of the King James. What manner of man is this? And then the four accounts together, they highlight that Jesus is a unique man. He is a man who, as one commentator puts it, He can vanquish all the powers hostile to God. All the powers hostile to God. Disaster, demons, disease, death, all the powers hostile to God. This man has power over them. In fact, this man has the full authority of God. 
And these accounts together make that one point. I want to go through these four accounts just briefly again. I'm going to take the first two in some detail and in conclusion focus on the last two. The first point is that you must respect, give supreme respect to Jesus. You must respect Jesus more than anyone or anything else because he has authority over all the chaos in creation. That first account described how these experienced fishermen found themselves in a storm. There actually were more than one boat. There were several boats. It was nighttime on Galilee. Jesus was the one who initiated the trip, saying, let's go across the lake. At this time, they didn't have modern weather satellite imaging that would have told them that a storm was coming. They also didn't have electric motors on their boats. So getting across Galilee would have taken some time. It was not unthinkable that you could get out four, five, six miles into the middle of this shallow lake and a storm would kick up. There are actually several shipwrecks that have been discovered in Galilee. There's actually a museum of a first century fishing boat that was submerged under Galilee. There's a museum on the, on the, uh, on the shore of Galilee. Well, these guys find themselves in a storm. I said there wasn't weather satellite imaging, right? Jesus knew the storm was coming. I think the detail that he's sleeping is significant. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But when the disciples are in this storm that Jesus has led them into, their boat starts taking on water. They become frantic, and they find Jesus sleeping. They wake him up, and what happened next is something they would never forget. He rebuked the wind. He looked at the, at the sea, and he said, be quiet. And it did. And then he looked at the disciples and said, why are you scared? Do you trust me? They would never forget. You can grasp the significance of what Jesus did if you know a few Old Testament references. I just put two up here. Psalm 46 and Psalm 65. Psalm 46 promises that the Lord would one day bring an end to all of the raging violence among the nations who are pictured like chaotic, crashing waves. The Lord himself will end international tumult with a simple word of command. Be still. Know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. Jesus quotes those words when he looks at the raging sea. Be still. Psalm 65, 7 says that the Lord will still the raging of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. 
In other words, by calming the waves on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was proving he's Lord. He has the power over all that's chaotic in the world, and he has the power to restore perfect peace to this entire planet. I want to go back and ask, what do you make of the fact that Jesus was sleeping? Do you think he was sleeping in the storm simply because he was just so tired? And he was just crashed out? Nothing could wake this guy up? Or do you think that his sleeping was intentional? I think the fact that he was sleeping does not indicate that he was unaware of the storm, but that he was deliberately waiting on his timing to end it. And every one of us reading this incident should trust Jesus, who we might feel like today is sleeping. Why aren't you doing anything? Why are you letting all the raging and the chaos continue? Don't you care? Trust Jesus. He's fully aware of the storm. And he's going to end it in his time. Every one of us as disciples needs to fear Jesus more than we fear anything that's going on around us. The second point I want to delve into is you must respect Jesus supremely more than anyone or anything else because he has authority over all demons. The second incident is where Jesus commands this cohort of demons named Legion to leave a man and he permits Legion to enter a herd of 2,000 pigs, which the demons immediately ruin. And the people in the area respond by caring more about their loss of income from the ruined pigs than they do about the restoration of this man and about Jesus who healed him. It's important to notice, I think, that the man who had been under the influence of demons responded to Jesus better than anyone else that Mark records. He desired to be with Jesus from that time on. He desired to submit his life to Jesus as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus simply said, go, describe to people how much mercy you've received. Demons are still active in our world today. We don't live in a different world. The primary way in which demons afflicted people in the ancient world and in the modern world, the primary way is not like we read here in Mark 5, but is actually through deception. It's an indirect way. Demons are primarily active today, and as they have been throughout history, in this 
indirect way, they charge untrue messages with appeal so that people are led away from Jesus. In other words, if you're not particularly enamored with Jesus, but you're enamored with business and money and sports and popular celebrities and controlling substances, if you're enamored with acceptance by friends and family, but you're not really enamored with Jesus, you're under the controlling influence of demons. There are demonically charged messages all through our culture that appeal to us to make us think Jesus is not all that significant and there are a whole lot of other things in life that are much more important than Jesus. If that's how you think, you're demonically influenced. You're under demonic deception. And yet, fallen angelic spirits still affect people more directly today like they did this man in this region of the Gerasenes. There are many accounts of people throughout the centuries and even people throughout the world today who live under the influence of demons. And often the manifestations are very similar. There is a fascination with death, with graveyards, with tombs. There are superhuman voices and superhuman strength that's manifest. People who are under the control of demons are often erratically violent against themselves or others. You may have encountered people like this. You may not have. You may have heard accounts of people who've encountered demon-possessed individuals. You may not have. The simplest way I can preach this passage for the good of our congregation is to say, demons are real. So is Jesus. Demons are powerful. Jesus has authority over them. Demons recognize Jesus and they're terrified of his authority to send them to final judgment. Demons can't do anything without permission from Jesus. They can't even go into pigs without Jesus' permission. We learn that demons are interested in destroying people and Jesus is interested in saving them. In fact, Jesus can save people who've lived under the control of demons. No one's past hope. If we looked at our community and we saw a man who was completely out of control, speaking with unusual voices, manifesting superhuman strength. And we saw all of these people calm and around him watching. Would we think, Jesus has the power to save that one. I'm going to go for him. 
What you have here is that the demon-possessed man is saved and the rest of the calm community is deceived thinking that Jesus is unimportant. It's ironic. We must not fear demons. Instead, we have to fear, we have to respect Jesus who has authority over them. And we're going to delve into the subject of spiritual warfare a bit more when we study chapter 9 of this book. But for now, I just want to encourage you, if you are scared of demons, what should you do? I would urge you to fill your mind with truth. Memorize passages like Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1. Memorize passages, quote them, pray them aloud. The truth that's recorded in the New Testament is truth. Use it, know it, treasure it, pray it. Memorize songs. Maybe a mighty fortress is our God. Maybe Jesus, King of Angels. Memorize songs about Jesus' authority over angels, over demons. Sing them. Rejoice in them. Fill your mind with truth about Jesus' authority over demons. Do not fear. Do not fear demons. Fear Jesus. The third and final incidents have to do with disease and death. We learn from them that we should respect Jesus more than anyone or anything else because he has authority over disease and death. In these last two incidents, which I covered together and really in conclusion, Jesus heals a woman who had had for 12 years this bleeding And then he raises a little 12-year-old girl from death. The fact that Mark, the writer, and Peter, the eyewitness, noted 12 years and 12 years, I think means that both understood that there was symbolic significance. It's not saying that every number has symbolic significance, but the fact that Mark keeps stressing 12s throughout the gospel and that he stresses it was 12 years she had this issue and it was 12-year-old that had died, I think he's suggesting that there's symbolic significance. Number 12, of course, is going to echo the 12 tribes of Israel. Both of these women had lived for 12 years and those 12 years had ended in misery. I think the symbolism is that Jesus can fix what the 12 tribes of Israel have failed to do. Jesus can obey God's law like Israel never could. He could be the light to bring salvation to all peoples on earth like Israel never was. They were never the light God intended them to, to be. They had gone on and on and on and Jesus could fix where they had failed. In the case of each woman, Jesus speaks to them with loving compassion. He says to the first daughter, 
She's fearing an angry response. And he responds with love. To the little girl, he says, Talitha, kumi, little girl, get up. And he healed both women with physical touch. The first woman touched him. The second, he touched her. Which symbolizes that he is not afraid of contamination. He's not afraid of being contaminated in a world full of misery and deformity and bleeding and death and sin. He's not afraid of contamination. I love how Carl Truman expresses it. He says, with each of these unclean characters, Jesus had direct contact. That should have made him unclean, but it actually made them clean. As this chapter shows, when the dirty is touched by the divine, the divine is not sullied, but the dirty is made clean. In these last two incidents... Jesus performed these healings on the basis of faith. The woman with the bleeding exercised faith. The the father of the little girl exercised faith. And Jesus stresses that the healings would happen according to faith. And so I just end here. Whether you and I will be delivered from all the powers that are hostile to God is dependent on whether you and I will trust that Jesus is more than a mere man. Whether you and I are going to be delivered from the power of sin and death, from the power of the curse, is contingent on whether you and I trust Jesus, submit our lives to Jesus, rely on Jesus, earth's crucified, risen, returning king. These lessons of Jesus' authority over demons, his authority over all the chaos in creation, his authority over death, these lessons were ratcheted down for these disciples in an unforgettable way. And I pray that God ratchets these lessons down for each one of us in a way that for some in here will create faith so that you will commit your life to Jesus and never turn back. And for those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, that we will be strengthened in our commitment to him so that we'll endure no matter what storms we're, we're going through. Father, I ask that you would help us not to fear storms, not to fear demons, not to fear death, but instead to fear Jesus. Help us to respect Jesus for his glory and our good, I pray. Amen.